Hello and welcome to another episode of the SAS podcast. I'm Anna Alexanian and I'm here today at the Nubarian Library in Paris with the director of the library, Dr. Boris Ajemian. And today we are going to discuss his book published in 2013 and titled La fanfare du Negus, Les Arméniens en Ethiopie. The translation will be The Brass Band of the King, Armenians in Ethiopia. Welcome to the podcast. And my first question is why and how you started the project and why Armenians in Ethiopia? Uh, first of all, uh, thank you for this invitation. I'm very pleased to answer your questions. <laughs> and also, of course, to meet you here in Paris. So, uh, talking about a project, actually, it, it, it's a bit difficult for me to, to see it as a project, as it was a kind of uh, lifelong experience rather than a project. Uh, I mean, my research about uh, Armenians in Ethiopia. So, I started my research in 1996. I spent my first uh, days in Ethiopia in 97. So, you can imagine. Although I look very young, uh, you can imagine the time I spent on this uh, on this issue, and uh, also I have to say that my first uh, intention was not precisely to study the Armenian community in Ethiopia. Actually, I was at the time I was studying as a historian, as a future a becoming historian. Mm-hmm. I was studying uh, African history. And um, I specialized on Ethiopian history, mm-hmm. and even I, I defended a, a master uh, about uh, Ethiopian yes. Christians in the 16th century. Uh, so nothing to see with the no relation at all with the Armenians. But after uh, after these first uh, works, I I tried to find a, a good topic for a, a potential PhD. My aim was really to to write something to to become a, a kind of to become a specialist okay. in Ethiopian history okay. and especially in medieval Ethiopian history. I was mm-hmm. really fascinated by this uh, this world. And uh, finally, my colleagues, uh, good comrades, they told me, "But Boris, you are looking for a topic, but there is an excellent topic for you. But there are Armenians in Ethiopia." So obviously, I had heard, I knew that there were mm-hmm. Armenians in Ethiopia. I didn't know much about them, but I knew. Even in my family, my father, remember, he told me about Armenian monks going to Ethiopia in the Middle Age, these kind of things. Mm. Also, when I was a kid, I had visited the British Museum Library, you know, where there was this Armenian Bible and Ethiopian Bible, Kovkovi, and they they were showing that there was a similarity in the writings, uh, something quite stunning. So I was quite reluctant to go further in this Mm -hmm. uh, uh, direction because my aim was to become an an Ethiopist, a real specialist of Ethiopian history. And these uh, good comrades were telling me, oh, you should specialize in Armenian history in Ethiopia. But uh, that was not my aim. And finally, my advisor, who was a clever guy, he told me, but you, you are fearing to be marginalized in this field, but uh, you shouldn't. The, the, the topic is really exciting. Uh, you should do something. And he really encouraged me. When I started my first field works, uh, so I had to go to people and mm-hmm. to start interviews with them. And I, I have been caught up by the topic immediately uh, because when they started to talk about their family's histories, and uh, moreover about 
legendary uh, events that were supposed to have happened in, mm. in Ethiopia a few decades ago and uh, uh, topics on which, uh, events on which there was almost nothing written in the books. Uh, so I realized that the topic was really fascinating and so I did some field works there. I didn't do a PhD at first and it lasted for years. I was going to Ethiopia. I became a teacher uh, here in France. I was teaching history and geography in secondary schools. Mm -hmm. And I had almost given up the, the idea to, to make a PhD. And the more I was advancing in the topic, the more the perspective, the idea of a PhD seemed unrealistic here because the, the topic was so weird uh, in a way. The, I had a lot of very interesting stories, but the stories which were interesting me the, the, the most were not history, they were stories. And there, mm. it was all about memories. It was not about written sources, written documents, archives, almost nothing about this. So, uh, but I had also, in this first early period, I tried also, besides gathering the, as much as possible that I could gather from the people, the people who were still there, mainly old people, from old people who all died now, of course, obviously. Uh, and uh, because I have to say also that when I came for the first time in 1997, uh, there were no more than 100 people living in, uh, in Ethiopia, in the Armenian community in Ethiopia, 100 people, no more. Oh. Uh, that's it was what was remaining from the, the, the former community mm -hmm. which had not disappeared but which had been dramatically reduced mm -hmm. during the regime of the Dirk, uh, the committee uh, that ruled Ethiopia for um, uh, 20 years mm -hmm. uh, after 1974 and the revolution. It was a militarist and um, let's say Marxist inspired regime mm -hmm. uh, and very violent which decided to nationalize every uh, private property, as in the USSR, of course. And so most of the foreign communities left the, countries, the country in this period. And the Armenians, the number of Armenians decreased from uh, 1,200 people to about 100, 100 people. And now there are, there are no more than 80 uh, people uh, descendants of Armenian mm. immigrants still living in Ethiopia. Uh, because you talk about this, um, just uh, clarifying, I learned from your book, of course, that uh, before uh, 1915, there were only uh, 100 Armenians living in Ethiopia. Am I right? Yes. And then the number increases during the Armenian gen genocide mm. or after the Armenian genocide. Mm. So can we talk about this? And also... Um, uh, Armenian merchants were going there in Middle Ages, if mm. I'm not mistaken. Can we also uh, talk a bit about these numbers and how this, um, let's say, Armenian community in Ethiopia f mm. formed in general? Yes, uh, you're right. Uh, so uh, at the end of... I came to the conclusion that mm -hmm. after my during my research that at the end of the reign of King Menelik, uh, Emperor Menelik, uh, in uh, between 1889 and 1913, he died in 1913 accordingly. Uh, 
because actually at the time there were a lot of rumors about his death. We didn't know exactly when he died and even these rumors, some of these rumors are linked to the Armenian community. So if we have time, we will speak about this later. It is very interesting. So at the end of Menelik's reign, Menelik, who is considered among the Armenian community as a benefactor of the Armenian mm -hmm. community, I think there were no more than 150 to 200 Armenian people mm -hmm. in the whole Ethiopia, mainly in Harar, Harar, uh, the Muslim, the former Muslim city uh, in, at the border between the Ethiopian highlands and the lowlands. And Harar had been uh, occupied by the Ethiopian army of Menelik in 1887, so it was conquered quite recently. At the time, there were already uh, a few individuals Armenian individuals coming from Egypt because the Egyptians had occupied the town between 1875 and 1885. So these people um, uh, were um, uh, already there and after the Hamidian massacres, their families came to, to them, mm. uh, the remnants of their families, women, children, uh, yeah, mothers, uh, yeah, who survived to the Hamidian massacres. They were, most of them were coming from the, the area of Arabkir. It is very interesting because mm -hmm. uh, the... Uh, Did they the, preserve uh, Arabkir-Armenian traditions they brought with them to Ethiopia or you can... I, I can only assume because mm. at the time uh, in a way, Harar became a kind of small Arab kir, but only with oh. a few families, about 50 to 80 people. Uh, but you can imagine that in this uh, context, uh, where there were no other foreigners, almost no other foreigners, uh, except a few Indians, a very few Greek and Italian merchants, these families coming, it was something very strange. Uh, also among the foreigners, the Armenians were uh, almost the only community who came with women and children. All the others were coming only uh, yeah, as, uh, as a workers. workers, like mm. the Greeks, for example, who came for the railway, uh, the works of the construction of the railway from Djibouti to Addis Ababa. They were young men coming mm. alone, having Ethiopian mistresses and uh, having a lot of fun in the street, being uh, uh, drinking alcohol, having creating problems, and everybody was complaining about the Greeks uh, in, among the, the diplomatic uh, society, among the ambassadors. Whereas the Armenians were seen as very uh, uh, sweet people coming with their families and uh, not uh, creating. Yes, again. yes, yes. After the genocide, there is a new wave uh, coming not specifically from Arabkir and the Kharpet Vilayet, mm -hmm. but uh, rather from Antap, so the Aleppo Vilayet, also from Giligia. But the, the, the place which represents the most the second wave of immigration, Armenian immigration to Ethiopia, is Aintab. So you have the first wave, the Arab Kertsi, the second wave with the Aintab Sea, and even there is this uh, difference which lasted in the, inside the community uh, later on. Of course, Aintapsi were not marrying easily their, their daughters to Arakirtsi <laughs> and vice versa, as you can imagine. There were not only Arakirtsi and Aintapsi, but these are the main uh, groups, uh, identified groups. Uh, so after the genocide with the second wave, we have a community of about 1,200 people in the late 1920s. 
the early 1930s, before the Italian occupation of Ethiopia mm. between 1936 and 1941. Yeah, yeah. So, the, in a way, it was a very small community, but in the meantime, it grew 10 times from 150, 200 to almost 1,000. One yes. Mm. So the community had to adapt to this uh, new uh, situation. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, these are very small figures, small numbers, but you have to uh, be aware that at the time the Armenian community was one of the main foreign community in numbers in the country because foreigners were very few in the country. Uh, and uh, the main community were the Indians, the Greeks, the Armenians and what they called at the time the Arabs, mainly people coming from Yemen. Mm. So uh, after these four main groups, the, the, the rest, the, the remnants of the uh, foreign population in Ethiopia was made of uh, Swiss, people from Switzerland, French, Russians, a few British, Germans, but only individuals and never coming with their families again. And so, uh, yes, the, the, Armenian, uh, the, 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 the Armenian presence was something at the time, mm. especially in towns like Hara, which was a, a small town. And, um, and Addis Abeba, it's the, the capital city, the new capital city, which was founded only in 1886. Mm -hmm. So the, the town was just uh, starting at the time. And... Uh, Actually, it was not really a town. It, it didn't look like a town. It, it looked like a, a vast area with hills, with camps, tents, huts, but not as a, a town. And uh, you, you can imagine that uh, if you think to the fact that in, in 1930, perhaps there were maximum 100,000 people inhabiting yeah. Addis Ababa. Yeah. So if you take 1,000 Armenian, it means that out of 100 people, one was Armenian. It's not nothing. But if you compare to the situation after the Second World War, when the city expanded its population, and now it is millions and millions of mm -hmm. people, of course, 80 Armenian people <laughs> in a city like this, they became completely invisible. Yes. Almost completely invisible. Especially for the new generation who don't know who were the Armenians. But at the time, they were not invisible. They were something. And the people were not mixing them uh, we're not confused. <laughs> yes, they understood that although they were white people, these people were not like the other white people. This is very interesting. You know, there is a word in uh, Amharinya, in Amharic, mm -hmm. which is used to designate all, everything which is uh, foreign, everything which is white, European. It is the word Farange. It comes from Frank. Frank. Farange. It is widely used in the Middle East. Uh, as far as India, it is used, this, this word. But in uh, Amharinya and Tigrinya, it is very used. And everything which is not Habasha, it means which is not Abyssinian, mm -hmm. it, is, it is Farange if it comes from abroad. Uh, even if you are smoking in the 16th century, uh, in a 16th century chronicle, Ethiopian chronicle, smoking tobacco can be described as Farange because it is not from the habits of the country. Mm -hmm. Uh, wearing trousers in the 19th century can be called Farange because it is for foreigners. So in a way, Farange is Odar, is mm -hmm. Odar. 
Uh, and the, the Armenians were not considered as funnels. This is very fascinating question. So how the famous Armenian fanfare, the brass band of the Ethiopian king, was formed? And how it is related to Armenian and um, Ethiopian churches? In, uh, in uh, 1924, Ethiopia had just been admitted uh, in the League of the Nations the former United Nations organization, which had been created after the Great War. And so it was the only African country, almost the only African territory which was not colonized, and the first one to be admitted in this international organization, 1923. The year after, the Crown Prince Rastafari, Crown Prince and Regent of uh, Ethiopia, his uh, acting as a kind also of uh, minister of uh, minister of foreign affairs, and he starts a big journey in Europe. The first time that an Ethiopian king mm -hmm. makes a trip to Europe, first time. So he goes to actually his father had been to France, but his father was not king. His father was Ras Merkonen. Uh, when I'm talking about Rastafari, many people know him. Uh, but uh, they have to, uh, the, the people who uh, are listening have to understand that Rastafari became later on uh, emperor under the name of Haile Selassie, Haile Selassie I. He was crowned emperor in 1930 and he remained emperor uh, as far as 1974 and the revolution and the collapse uh, of the Ethiopian monarchy. So he goes to Europe and he his first stop is in Jerusalem, of course, because he's an Ethiopian crown prince. He has to show that he has a, a great. He gives a great importance to religion, mm -hmm. and also he has to he has to visit all the uh, religious uh, communities, congregations, mm -hmm. representatives, and especially the Armenians, because the Armenians and the Ethiopians the Christians uh, are very close churches, they are sister churches uh, mm -hmm. from the 5th century. They share the same, exactly the same uh, dogma. So they are not work, uh, working with Rome, they were not working with Byzantium or Constantinople. Uh, they call themselves Orthodox, of course, but they are not the same kind of Orthodoxy than the Greeks or the Russians. They are with the Coptics and, of course, the Syriac, uh, Jacobites. Mm -hmm. uh, they work together. And so he goes to the Armenian Patriarchate, and when he visits the, the Patriarch Yerish Etoyan, mm -hmm. there is in the compound of the Patriarchate, the Armenian Patriarchate in Jerusalem, there is a fanfare, a brass band, mm -hmm. formed with uh, young boys mm -hmm. who plays for, for him. And uh, these uh, young boys were orphans. So this was a part of ceremony. They welcomed him. Yeah, hmm. they were orphans and they were living in the in the monastery because at the time there was after the genocide, there was a lot. There were a lot of refugees, survivors, and uh, also orphans in the Armenian monastery of uh, uh, Subhagopians, and uh, the orphanage Araradian had been founded, created by the AGBU. Mm -hmm. And it was organized by the AGBU with the help of the Armenian Patriarchate. 
So there was this brass band, they played for the, the Ethiopian king, and the king was so pleased with their music that he said, oh, I should invite them to Ethiopia. Uh, what do you think if you come to Ethiopia and you became my personal fanfare and the brass band of the Ethiopian government? And of course, Armenian patriarch welcomed it, no? Yes, the Armenian patriarch discussed with the DAGBU in Paris, at the time Boros Nobar, Mm -hmm. And uh, also with the boys, also they, they asked the boy, do you wish to go to Ethiopia? They accepted. Their choice was quite limited. It was yes, either exactly. Ethiopia, either Armenia, because at the time they were trying to send to all send, these orphans yeah. uh, to Armenia. To Soviet Armenia. Yeah, to Soviet Armenia. They decided to, to try Ethiopia. So they were sent to Ethiopia in 1924. And they were the first organized and uh, sustainable Uh, music group in Ethiopia, uh, playing European-style music uh, with European instruments, uh, military march, and their uh, teacher, uh, their maestro, Kevork Nalbandian, he became someone very important in the history of music in Ethiopia because he was asked by Rastafari to write an anthem for mm -hmm. Ethiopia. And this was the first time that Ethiopia had a national anthem. So, these young boys, the 40 orphans, they are called Arbalojoch in Amharinya, which means the 40 kids, uh, the, the, the Arbalojoch, the 40 orphans, they played for the first time the national anthem, the Ethiopian national anthem, which was written by an Armenian, and this anthem remained the Ethiopian anthem Minchev, uh, as far as the uh, revolution in 1974, so for 50 years. So the question I had was, Why did Tuffery choose these, uh, these Armenian boys to play the fanfare? Uh, if you, it is very funny because they were quite inexperienced. Uh, although in the legend, of course, there were the 40 boys who came with the fanfare, so uh, also people say that they were adopted. Now the pe people think that they were adopted by the king, which is not true. There yeah. was a contract. My interpretation yeah. is that there was something political mm -hmm. in it that at the time Ethiopia was in a period of uh, creation of uh, new national mm -hmm. symbols, which was very important because the policy, the whole policy of uh, the kings of Ethiopia, the different kings of Ethiopia, from the time of Johannes, Menelik, even Lijiasu, and of course Rastafari Haile Selassie, so all the 19th century and early 20th century period, their main goal was to assert, to affirm, consolidate Ethiopian sovereignty. We were in a period of colonialism. Mm -hmm. Ethiopia was not colonized, but surrounded by colonial powers. Djibouti with the French, the uh, French uh, uh, Somali coast. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, Eritrea with the Italians, also Somalia, the mm -hmm. Italians too. Somaliland and Sudan with the British. So they were surrounded. And there, there were real threats of invasion, the Ethiopian Uh, the Italians had tried in 1895-1896. So still in the 1920s, the Ethiopian kings, the Ethiopian state, was always trying to affirm its independence, its sovereignty. So the, the, the creation of a new flag, a new money, new stamps, uh, a new music, was going always in this uh, same direction of creating new symbols that will show that Ethiopia is a modern and civilized country on an equal foot 
with the European powers. Because at the time, in the mind of people like uh, Haile Selassie, civilized country, it means Europeanized yeah, country. Yes. But a bit in the model of Japan, you know? Yeah. Europeanized, but in a, as far as we don't lose our proper identity as, mm. a, uh, as a different nation. So we have to mm. take advantage from things from Europe, technologies and the like, but not be without being submitted to any uh, European or foreign influence. This was very strong. So the question, why does he choose Armenian unexperienced boy to play the, the, the Ethiopian music? Because we know that they were unexperienced. We know it because the few witnesses who wrote about the Armenian fanfare, European witnesses, they all said that they played very bad. <laughs> and also they were playing very funny uh, songs in a very un inappropriate moments. So the fact also is that Tuffery at the time wouldn't have been mm, in position to have European musicians uh, to play the national music of Ethiopia. For example, there were excellent Italian musicians. Just try to imagine what would have the people think if Tuffery had bring mm -hmm. Italian think, musicians. Yes. Moreover, at the time, among the Ethiopians, there were rumors that the king was not a true Ethiopian Orthodox supporter of the church and that he had even converted secretly to Catholicism, which was something very... Um, Boring. Exactly. Yeah. So also he had a French background. I mean, he was francophone. He was a French speaker. Some people were criticizing even in, among the the government to open too much Ethiopia to foreign influences. So even to have French or British musicians at the time would have made problem. Having Armenians was not the same. First, these people had no state. So right. they were not representing a colonial power. Second, they were orphans. So that was something very symbolical. And of course, you could say the king is very generous. He's a good Christian. He's adopting in a way our poor Armenian orphans moreover white orphans he's an African king he's adopting white he's showing a kind of superiority to white people it's very interesting symbolically and in the meantime they were Armenians so it means that they were belonging to the Armenian church the Armenian church is not any church it's a sister church of the Ethiopian church so they were co-religionists so on every ground, they were acceptable. And if you think then to the relationship between the uh, Ethiopian and Armenian churches, it is very, very long history also, which started in Jerusalem and lasted for centuries and centuries. And we know that there is an Armenian presence in the Holy Land from the 5th century. But yes. there, is, there is an attested uh, Ethiopian uh, presence, permanent presence in the Holy Land too, after the 13th century and during the whole uh, period, especially in the Ottoman period after 1517, there are close uh, relationships between the two churches and the fact is that the Ethiopians were in a situation of weakness after the, the beginning of the Ottoman period. For example, they lost their rights on the Holy Sepulchre. They were ex yes. expelled from inside the Holy Sepulchre uh, and the, the Armenians became, in a way, their representative 
towards the Ottoman authority, as they were doing for the Coptics and for the Syriacs. The Armenian yes. Patriarchate was strong at the time, mm -hmm. so he was able to speak in their name. And uh, also the Armenians were, the Armenian Patriarchate was feeding the Ethiopian monks. It's very important. He was feeding them, uh, mm -hmm. and we know this with several testimonies from the early 18th century and again in the late 19th century there is something important that mm -hmm. this uh, relationship was so old and uh, that even in the 16th century for example there were Armenian travelers going to Ethiopia there was uh, there is a, an Ethiopian queen Queen Eleni mm -hmm. in the 16th century Ethiopian the Ethiopian Christian kingdom is attacked by Muslims from the neighborhood and they try to help to, to ask for help to the king of Portugal and they send an emissary, mm. a kind of ambassador. Uh, not really an ambassador, a merchant, an Armenian merchant called Mateus. Unfortunately, the, the Portuguese don't believe that he is a true ambassador of the Ethiopian queen. So they arrest him and they put him in jail in Goa mm. and they, he stays there many years after he is authorized to go to Portugal he goes there after he goes back to uh, to Ethiopia and he dies uh, and this is a very long story the story of Mateus and this is the, the starting point of a kind of alliance between the Ethiopians and the Portuguese Portuguese are in the, in the game now but the problem with the Portuguese is that they help you in a hand with a hand uh, by uh, uh, sending soldiers and uh, firearms but the problem is the other end they also send missionaries Jesuits to convert you to, to, to Catholicism and uh, this worked quite well even in the early 17th century there is an Ethiopian Emperor Susenios who converted to Catholicism but it was such a mess in Ethiopia at the time that he was forced because of this conversion he was forced to leave the throne to his son and the first de decision of his son in 1632 King Facilodus was to expel the Jesuit, Jesuits, to expel them and to expel all the Europeans from Ethiopia. And Europeans were not authorized to go back to Ethiopia until the late 18th century. So during about 150 years, Europeans were persona non grata in Ethiopia. And in the meantime, Armenian travelers continue, continue oh, to sure. travel mm. and to write testimonies about their travels in Ethiopia. Uh, so, yeah, and for example, there is in uh, 1679, there is an archbishop, uh, Tutunji, uh, well known because there is a, bo a book by uh, Alboyajian on him, yes. and uh, he comes to Ethiopia and he brings a relic, a bone of a monk, Ewostateos, an Ethiopian mm -hmm. monk, who died in Armenia in the uh, late 14th century. He mm. lived about 20 years in Armenia. He died there. So he brings back a bone of his hand. So they, in the Royal Chronicle, in the Ethiopian Royal Chronicle, it is said that he was interviewed by a group of um, uh, Ethiopian priests to see if he was a spy, mm -hmm. if he was a good Christian or an heterodox. And they interviewed him with the help of an Armenian interpreter called Murat. And Murat is known, also well known, because he was a merchant and he worked for three different successive emperors, Ethiopian emperors, and he traveled as far as, as Indonesia many times for him. At the time, 
still when the Europeans were not authorized to penetrate in Ethiopia. So there is all this context. Finally, they recognize Tutungi as a true, true uh, orthodox co-religionist and they accept the bone uh, from Ewos Tantewos. And the same kind of story happened in the 18th century uh, when the British embassy had a big problem uh, with the, the, the Ethiopian king, Tewodros, because Tewodros had arrested and kept prisoners uh, several Europeans, including the British consul of Massawa on the Red Sea. So the British ambassador in Constantinople, knowing the, the links between the two churches, asked a favor to the Armenian Patriarchate in Jerusalem, say, saying, can you do something for us? Negotiate for Yeah. So the Armenian Patriarchate sends two uh, emissaries, two dignitaries, Father Dimoteos and Archbishop Sahak Harpetsi, to uh, Ethiopia. And unfortunately for them, they never succeeded to meet with Theodros. At the time, there were a lot of rebellions, internal rebellions in Ethiopia. So they were kidnapped even by Ethiopian chiefs from northern Ethiopia. They were robbed. And in his uh, travel account, very interesting travel account, Dimoteos explains Ethiopians are very uh, hard people, they don't treat us well, they don't even feed them enough. And one day there is a group of priests coming to them and he explains that these priests were asking them about their religion, about their faith. So they tried to explain their faith and after a while the the, the, the priest said, oh, you are true Armenian co-religionist, so you, we accept you. And so from, the, from now on, the, their situation changed completely. And they are very respected. <laughs> they are authorized to travel everywhere. They are even asked to stay in, to stay in Ethiopia and Archbishop Sahak to become the new head of the Ethiopian church, which he declines because he wants to escape from Ethiopia as soon as possible and return to Jerusalem. But still, at the end of the 19th century, you see this dimension, the religious dimension, was very strong. Uh, the, the importance of religion is not the same in the Ethiopian context and in the, the European, let's say, semi-dechristianized context. Uh, it's not like, like in the West. So still in politics, it has a very huge importance. So how was the life of the Armenian community in Ethiopia? And uh, can we say that Ethiopia became home, uh, kind of a homeland for Armenian refugees? Ideally, in memories that Armenians, Armenian immigrants and their descendants created a kind of Armenian homeland in Ethiopia. Ethiopia for them was really a homeland. In real, I don't know. I mean, in their minds, it, was a, it became a homeland. I mean, they were... Uh, living in good conditions compared to the Ottoman Empire yeah, and to yes. Turkey, of course. And uh, they spoke the language of the country, mm -hmm. sometimes several languages of the country. They wrote Amharinya, so they were able even to be integrated to the Ethiopian administration as workers. They, I mean, they were involved in, in a, every field mm -hmm. of the social life. They were acting in fields uh, that the, the Ethiopian kings would have never uh, left to foreign hands. For example, the jeweler of the crowns, uh, the jeweler who made the crowns of the, the imperial crowns were all Armenians after the end of the 18th century. The first was Dikranebeyan. Hmm. He made the crown of Emperor Johannes. After he made the crown of King Menelik and Empress Taitu, 
After when Tigran died, another one made the crown, Hagob Bardasarian from Van, he made the crown of Rastafari, Haile Selassie and his wife. And after him, other jewelers came until the revolution. The last one was Bedros Savadjian. Uh, and uh, the photographers of the court were only Armenians from 1906 when Bedros Boyajan was appointed the first official photographer of the court. There was no photographer before him at the court. All the photographers of the court, all the official portraitists of the court were Armenians. Even moreover, they were all from the same family. Bedros, his son Haigaz, and after him his, son, uh, his brother uh, Tony. There are many examples like this show that Armenians were not in uh, high positions, never high-ranking positions, uh, but they were involved symbolically a very important field. I mean, everything which was related to the, the appearance of the, the imperial state power, Ethiopian state power, and the, 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 the way it appeared to the foreign world, everything was in the hands of mm. Armenians, and never in, hands, in the European hands, for example. But there were, at the same time, uh, official counselors of the king, which were coming from Switzerland, from France, sometimes from Italy, mm. in different several periods, sometimes Greeks, sometimes Swedish. But Armenians had a very specific status. Uh, thank you for this fascinating discussion and for those who want to learn more about the Armenian community in Ethiopia, you can find and read Dr. Ajemian's book, La Fafar du Negus, Les Armeniens en Ethiopie. Thank you.